and welcome to Panda View Currents, an in-depth podcast from the Northwest Progressive Institute that brings together thinkers from Washington, Oregon, and Idaho to discuss strategies for advancing progressive causes across our region and beyond. I'm your host, Kaya Burnt, and thank you for joining us. At the Northwest Progressive Institute, we believe that good legislation and good policy don't pass by accident. Where the ideas from increasing the minimum wage to $15 an hour to Medicare for all to wider availability of rooftop solar need sound strategies if they're to become a reality. Our team believes research is the key to identifying winning strategies while advocacy is the key to implementing them. That's why we're engaged in both. You can learn more about our insightful research, imaginative advocacy, and our history by visiting nwprogressive.org. Again, that's nwprogressive.org. I will give you that information again at the end of this podcast. Our topic for this month's episode is combating election fatigue and improving voter turnout. Decades of data demonstrate that voter turnout tends to be highest in presidential years and lowest in odd number years, which is when local elections are held in many jurisdictions. In a 2018 op-ed published by the New York Times, Professor Zoltan El Hajnal, the author of America's Uneven Democracy, Turnout, Race, and Representation in City Politics, noted that the result is, quote, an extraordinarily underrepresentative set of residents determines how local governments distribute services and spend the almost two trillion that local governments control, end quote. Professor Hajnal added, quote, this isn't a new problem and its causes are fairly obvious. Many local elections are held on dates other than national elections. It's hard enough getting people out to vote for a president, and Congress is even harder to get them out again to vote for county and city officials, end quote. Fortunately, he says, quote, there is an equally simple solution, and it comes at little cost. Move the dates of local elections to coincide with statewide and national contests, end quote. Phasing out all-year elections across the Evergreen State is a cause NPI has been working on in the Washington State Legislature for several years. Oregon and Idaho already refrain from holding state-level general elections in odd number years, but do hold elections for some local positions in odd years. Other strategies that have been proposed for dealing with election fatigue and race voter turnout besides phasing out odd-year elections are eliminating unneeded statutory special election windows, prohibiting frivolous recall attempts, making it easier to securely return a ballot by expanding the number of drop boxes, and increasing resources for voter outreach. Joining me to discuss how these and other ideas for improving participation in our elections are Representatives Mia Gregerson from Washington, Representative Dan Rayfield from Oregon, and Representative Ilana Rubel from Idaho. Welcome to all three of you. Wonderful to be here. Thanks for for holding this. Yeah, absolutely. So before we get into our discussion, let's just do brief introductions for our listeners can get a sense of the expertise and experience this panel brings to this episode of PNW Currents. Elana, would you like to go ahead and get us started? Oh, sure. I am the uh, House Minority Leader here in the Idaho Legislature, where I've served for about eight years. Um, I am uh, in in daily life. I'm an intellectual property attorney and uh, mother of four and avid outdoors person. All right. Thank you very much. And Mia, over to you. So I'm Representative Gregerson. I live in the shadow of the SeaTac Airport here in SeaTac, uh, Washington, the home of the first $15 minimum wage, by the way. And I've been in the legislature now since the end of 2013. I was appointed and a former chair of state government and tribal relations. And that's why I'm so interested in voting turnout and voter access. 
Um, and now I'm one of the budget negotiators in the State House Appropriations Committee. It's great to be here. And I do enjoy hiking, and I've been hiking on the Pacific Crest Trail and headed down towards Oregon. Hopefully I'll hit the Oregon uh, border here later this year. All right, that's awesome. I'm a, I'm a pretty big hiker myself. I haven't been out nearly as much as I would like this year, but uh, that's the beautiful thing about Washington is that we have great year-round access. And finally, Dan, over to you. Yeah, thanks for having us. My name is Dan Rayfield, so I'm a state representative from the uh, in Oregon from the Corvallis Philom with Oregon State University region. I was first elected in 2014. Uh, when I first came in, uh, a lot of the areas that I spent a lot of time was in our House Rules Committee, which is where you deal with a lot of the elections policy. And so I've worked on uh, numerous policies, starting with, I think the first bill that we worked on was Oregon Motor Voter, which was the first in the nation registering folks uh, via DMV, all the way to this last election where we finally, after like a 20-year fight, I would say, finally passed uh, postmarked, where you actually are count your ballots on the date of its postmark, not on the date of election. And so that was kind of a big win. Actually, I would say both of my elections bills are getting uh, referred apparently uh, this year, which I wear as a badge of courage. And then in my private life, uh, I am an attorney as well. So although I don't do uh, patent law, that's much more uh, intellectual and uh, complicated than I think I'm willing to commit myself to. All right. Thank you very much, Dan. That's that's all great. And I'm Kaya, your host. I'm an NPI staff member and undergraduate student at Central Washington University, a Spokane native and eternal optimist. I have a passion for ideas and catalyzing conversations that can spark long lasting progressive change. It is so wonderful to have you all here. So I would like to get started by asking you each to briefly describe your state's elections and voting systems so our listeners can get a sense of the similarities and differences across our states. The questions I'd primarily like each of you to answer are, at what frequency are elections held in your state? When are city, council, port, school board, and other local elections elected? What is required to register to vote in your state? How easy is it to return a ballot? How widespread are drop boxes, are ballot return envelopes provided with prepaid postage? And what was turnout like in the last election at your state, uh, the last election your state held? So Dan, would you like to start us off? Yeah, and it, the our elections primarily here in Oregon are held on a yearly basis. Our main elections where you think about like your state legislators, statewide offices, federal are always in the um, even years. In the odd years, you do have kind of the problem where you were talking about at the very beginning where you have your school board races, which are in this strange May election process um, that we just went through, which always has a historically lower turnout as I mean, I think any Anybody would expect. Uh, many of your city races will start off with their, um, say if you've got uh, six candidates, that will be in the even year May primary. However, because if they are nonpartisan, it's if someone gets um, a majority uh, under that circumstance, they're automatically elected. However, if no one receives a majority, then you have a runoff in the general election. Uh, and so that's the same with our statewide uh, Bully Commissioner, Bureau of Labor and Industries. Um, their election proceeds the same way. Um, 
Registering in the state of Oregon is fairly easy. Uh, you know, it is now almost automatic when you go get your driver's license. Um, Oregon was the first state to pass Oregon Motor Bill, uh, Oregon Motor Voter Bill, uh, which basically, when you go, you register your driver's license. That'll update your registration, um, and that will continue to happen every ten years. We're looking at ways to expand that, where we can have a valid address um, and of someone we can confirm that they are a resident of Oregon. And so we're looking at other agencies where we can partner up with the Department of Human Services here in Oregon is one of those. Um, so that's how you can do that. You can also register online um, at the Secretary of State's website um, is another way. Um, the Let's see here. The easiest way to return the ballot, we can do it two ways. One of the bills we passed two years ago uh, in out of the Ways and Means process was our um, uh, post, uh, it was uh, ensuring that all of our mail-in ballots have postage. So it's paid postage in all of our ballots. And so that finally happened. Um, you can now mail your ballots in without even having to have a stamp. Um, alternatively, um, you can uh, drop it off at your um, drop boxes, which in statute are, you, there are a certain amount of drop boxes have to be in certain locations. Um, there are always anecdotal information about the inadequacy or certain drop boxes um, in, across the nation, right, um, of access to drop boxes. We haven't had a lot of those issues, although there have been some, you know, questions about that. Um, turnout in the state was roughly 75% um, uh, during the um, last general election, um, and obviously it varies by county. Our turnout numbers did shift, um, and it's tough to compare because once we did motor voter and we brought a whole bunch of new people onto the rolls um, of low propensity, um, you know, folks that just had not, uh, you know, had an opportunity or taken the time to register, then the numbers shifted down a little bit. But uh, so that's just kind of a little caveat there. All right. Thank you very much for that. And Alana, over to you. Our entire legislature is up every two years, which is a little unusual. Uh, many states have, you know, senators with four-year terms. All of ours are two-year terms, and they all coincide with federal elections. Um, but our top-of-the-ticket statewide elections are held in the even years that are not presidential years. Um, so we will, for example, our governor and our entire, you know, attorney general, secretary of state, all of that will be held uh, next year in 2022. And those are every four years. Um, so, but but generally, our our uh, state level elections do coincide with federal elections, whether they be the midterms or the presidential. Um, it is always November of an even year. Um, now, our city uh, elections are held in odd years. So our mayoral and city council elections are all held in odd years. Um, and we can get into this a little later, but I think it's interesting from a partisan perspective, it sounds like we're very much the inverse of what you're uh, referencing here and that here it is very much the Republican Party that is driving to move our city elections to even years. Um, because I think they feel that that would be a ticket to get rid of all the progressive folks we have in city government right now um, to, you know, put it in the even years when we see a huge red partisan wave. Um, so we, we, we live in the upside down a little bit in Idaho, but it's a, it's a very inverse dynamic to what you're describing. Um, but so those are the, those are the frequency of our elections. Um, I think I address, oh, school board elections are all over the place, um, and they often coincide with nothing in terms of, they're often not even in November. Those will often happen, you know, kind of district by district, but sometimes those are in August, um, and uh, they, those, those can tend to have extremely low turnout um, in terms of those hyper-local positions. In order to register to vote in Idaho, um, 
It's We actually have online registration, which is nice. That's something that just appeared in the last two years. We unfortunately don't have Motor Voter. We've been trying to do that for years, and it's been consistently blocked. We, we haven't managed to uh, get a hearing on it. And just by way of background, we are in a very red state. Um, our legislature is 82% Republican, um, with only 18% of us as Democrats. So this has been something that's been on the Democrats' agenda for many years to try to get automatic voter registration, Motor Voter, you name it. We are consistently blocked by our GOP chairs, um, but at least we, we do have online registration now, which is an improvement. Um, in order to register online, you have to have a driver's license or state ID, but you actually can register without those items. You just have to do it through the old fashioned paper method of mailing in your mailing in a paper application. And with that, you are able to register with just the last four digits of your social security card and you just fill out your name and address, put in the last four digits of your social and you can register to vote that way. Um, but we are seeing moves in the wake of the 2020 election to try to make it harder um, and put restrictions and prevent, you know, students from voting uh, using anything but uh, uh driver's license issued to their dorm room, which of course they'll never have. Uh, so we could be in flux on that. But right now we have a reasonably accessible, not ideal, wish we had motor voter, wish we had automatic voter registration, but at least, you know, we don't have incredibly rigid um, ID requirements currently. Um, in terms of returning a ballot right now, um, we have a fairly generous, I think on the on the national scale, um, absentee ballot system where you, you know, no excuses, no witnesses required. Um, anybody can request, you can request an absentee ballot online or by mail, um, and you can return it by mail or at a Dropbox, but it does need to be received by election day for it to be counted. Um, we don't have a ton of Dropboxes, but we, um, Again, as I, you know, I've, I've learned a little more about how other, how other states do things with all the uh, crises of the last year or so. Um, ours, there's, there's, a, there's a box in front of City Hall and there's a box in front of our voter office, at least here. There, I think throughout the state, there's generally a drop box in front of the county elections office across the state. So you have to drive over isn't fabulously accessible for everybody. You know, in Boise, it's not too bad. I have to drive about five or six miles to get to my Dropbox. Um, I'm sure there are some parts of the state where it's substantially more onerous to drive to a Dropbox. Uh, you know, we have vast areas of wilderness where I'm sure there are people who have to drive an hour to get to their county, county elections office. Um, but Fortunately, where we are, it's pretty straightforward. Um, but, you know, you don't have to wait in line. You can drop it off any hour of the day or night. It's just sitting there in front of City Hall and you just drop it off. Um, so I'd, I'd say there, now for the first time this year during COVID, we did have prepaid postage on the envelopes. Um, that was not something we'd had before. And that was actually a source of some confusion because people were like, ah, how many stamps do I need? It's kind of a big envelope. What, you know, I think, I think that might have been a barrier before. But for our primary election this year, it was all by mail. Um, and uh, that has since been banned, by the way. A law was passed banning all, all mail elections during our past legislative session. Um, but we did, at least for the first time, have all postage paid on all of our absentee ballots. I don't know if that's going to be an ongoing thing. I think that was done at the option of county election officials, and I don't think they're required statutorily to do that again. Um, but I think because there was no way to vote other than by mail, they, they, they concluded it would be an access to the ballot problem if they didn't provide prepaid envelopes. But I, I think that was a one-time, one-off deal. Um, in terms of turnout, uh, we actually have pretty high turnout in Idaho. I think the estimate on our last election was about 82% um, for the 2020 election. 
And we don't tend to see that much drop off in the off year federal elections because that is when our top of the ticket state elections are. So um, there's a little bit of a drop off, but our even year, like our, I expect our 2022 numbers will be somewhat dropped off, but not that much from our presidential years. I would anticipate it'll be like 75%, um, but, but pretty high. All right. Thank you very much, Alana. And finally, Mia. So the way Washington State has it is we have two main uh, elections, one in August, actually. That's our primary. And then again, our general is in November. And um, in the even years, we have our statewide races, our Senate are every four years, and our entire House representatives are every two years. For your levies, we're, still, we're a simple majority. Um, and there's can be up to seven elections um, <laughs> when you think about in those two years, whether it's April, February, uh, May, you know, so there's quite a few. There's seven, um, which can create voter fatigue. Right. Um, and a lot of drop off, drop off, especially it probably in either the odd or the even years, just because voters are busy living their everyday lives. Um, and then we also have. Um, you can register to vote same day. So I'm just going to sort of list off very similar to some of the things that I think um, Dan talked about, whether it's automatic voter registration. We actually have same day registration. So you, you have to go into um, an, an office to register, but you can do that the same day. We have uh, prepaid that just went into effect a couple years ago. About 90% of our voters. So we have um, about 4.35 million voters. Uh, in Washington state and about 90% of them live within three miles of a ballot box. So they have multiple choices in that. Um, we also passed a future voter program. So that not only is a good citizenship day, so folks that are 15, uh, 16 and 17 can register to vote. It'll sit until they turn 18. Um, so again, uh, for the youth. And then we have the Native American Voting Rights Act. So what that is, is a lot of our tribal communities lived hundreds of miles away from a ballot box. So again, it's to help with um, ballot boxes, but also alternate addresses so they could use a tribal building rather than uh, an independent address. Um, and then also ID cards, different ID cards in order to register to vote. So again, just really breaking down those barriers. Um, we have anywhere from 1% to 2% of ballots being rejected, whether it's for getting to sign it or the signature being um, challenged. And so we have uh, daily, mandated daily curing um, reports that auditors have to show. Uh, as you know, some of these local races, especially in odd year elections, win and lose by 30 some votes. So it allows for people to learn about that and then tracking your ballot. So you can go online, you've got your own independent number through your name and date of birth. So you can track it all the way through the process. Uh, I had a local city uh, race where she actually had her ballot cha <laughs> challenged. So I think it's just a great example. Um, yeah, so I'll just stop there. Thanks. Thank you all for those primers. So we've got a lot to talk about. So let's dive into the discussion. We'll begin in Washington, where county elections officials are currently tabulating ballots in the August 2021 top two election. Turnout is once again abysmal, and as of the day this episode was recorded, only 29% of the ballots have been returned. 
So Mia, you have sponsored legislation to begin phasing out odd year elections in Washington state, which is opposed by Secretary of State Kim Wyman and county auditors. Do you plan to reintroduce similar legislation in the future? And if so, what hurdles need to be overcome in the Washington state legislature to make this change? Yeah, thank you. And thank you to NPI too for your support um, on this issue. It's so important. One, one, yes, first of all, yes, I am working on drafting the legislation, which is not going to be much different than what you've already seen in the past. And um, I, I have to say that while there's opposition to it, I think it also is paired nicely with moving the primary. We have an August primary. Um, and so if you're really looking at turnout in a primary of top two, you really have to think about that um, paired with the odd year election. So, um, so with that, the uh, odd year would really help if you have someone who is appointed or you have a special, they would still run um, regardless. Um, and you move them to the even year, they'd still run in that odd year. And so it allows it to open up quite a bit for allowing for folks to really see what's on the ballot. Um, during those even year. Now, some of the opposition to this is, oh, you're gonna have a crowded ballot, you're gonna have a two-page ballot. I think we hear the same concerns with ranked choice voting, and I think we're working well, nicely through, through those um, issues. The other one is folks that already have individual power want to be able to choose another office and keep their, <laughs> their position, um, and I just don't think that that's a good enough excuse to not want to move uh, to yeah, even your elections. Yeah, thank you very much for that. Um, and so, Dan, I want to follow up that question turning to Oregon, which doesn't hold state-level elections in odd-numbered years like Washington does. But some positions are still voted on in elections held in May and November of years like 2021. Do you favor moving any of those local elections to even-numbered years? Yes, um, I, I, so in, in a perfect world, right, you'd take school board elections and move those to um, either, if they're nonpartisan, running it to the primary in a even numbered year with the runoff in the, in the general. I still have to struggle with primaries as low turnout primaries as a way to select our, uh, the folks that are going to be governing the state. Um, and so that, that is something, an internal struggle I do have, although some of the things that uh, you know, Mia talked about, I mean, are, are real issues, institutional issues in Oregon amongst like clerks um, and other folks where there's just resistance to change. And so the real question is how can you, you know, partner some of that up to then get the change in Oregon? And, and one of the things I think I'm interested in is, there is there's cost savings by not having that May election in in those even in those odd numbered years right we also have a movement and something i'm very supportive of of switching our uh, when we have our primary for the presidential election right and moving that to um the super tuesday in march and so i think there's some interesting things where you might be able to pair up a couple of reforms in one bill um, and then hopefully move forward and i don't know how it is in washington or idaho i'd be really curious to know um, you know, how your, in Oregon, it's the county clerks, 
right? Um, and they some have a, a large influence on what type of policies, you know, get considered um, in terms of just for the functionality of implementation. Um, yeah, I'd be really curious to see the impact on other states, how they, that, what that plays in, because they obviously have a voice to your county commissioners, right? Who then have a voice in the legislative process. Um, we, we were very fortunate in, in Oregon to have a, a very progressive secretary of state um, who is very forward thinking um, and is supportive of a lot of reforms like that. So that is one interesting difference in Oregon. Thank you very much for that, Dan. And both you and Mia have mentioned that there is some opposition in both states towards legislation that introduces phasing out odd year elections. So I guess my big question is, what are the main pieces of opposition and how do you plan on addressing those, Mia? Okay, thanks. Well, one of the things I, I failed to talk about in the bill is that we have statewide initiatives. And if you think about what it, what it takes, and I know NPI spoke um, on record in regards to this very eloquently, about how what is it, the number of folks that are going to vote to really um, have that voice, that ultimate uh, final voice on a statewide initiative? <laughs> and and when, at what point in time do we need to have more of a majority of the voices be able to you know, weigh in on that rather than um, taking advantage of such a small uh, voting population weighing in on that. So I think that's one of the issues. And so, of course, you can imagine the opposition to that. Why or why not? <laughs> you would want to continue that type of infrastructure. Um, the other is uh, crowded ballots. We talked about that, flipping it over. Um, and then our auditors had complained about um, the uncertainty of having one year very busy and one year not very busy. Uh, these are elected officials. That is their job is to be able to identify and work through the budgetary um, ramifications of those changes. I think that they're very good traditionally on other changes. So it feels like this is one that they could get used to. Um, and then, you know, we firmly believe that it'll allow for people to really focus on voting turnout, citizen or civics education on those other years. I've heard actually nonprofits come forward worried about their inability to raise money um, or PACs to raise money to support these candidates. And I just don't really think that that crowded space is a good enough a reason to continue uh, this cycle. Absolutely. And so I want to move on to Ilana, I have a question for you. So uh, Washington and Oregon have Democratic trifectas in their state houses, while Idaho is, as you mentioned, controlled by Republicans. Uh, given Donald Trump's hold on the Republican Party and hostility to voting at home, there's probably not much chance Idaho will follow Washington and Oregon's lead in going all in on vote at home or adopting automatic and same-day voter registration laws. But is there any possibility that the legislature might make it easier to return a ballot cast at home, like with prepaid postage on return envelopes? We're in a really unusual situation in Idaho, is all I can say. In, in every sense, it's really funny. All of the patterns I see playing out across America are almost completely inverted. At least anything you see in a blue state is absolutely inverted here in Idaho. So um, we have actually historically had, as I said, pretty generous voting. You know, we have multiple weeks of early voting that's pretty accessible, pretty easy to return an absentee ballot with no excuses fairly relaxed ID requirements, same-day registration, online registration. 
we're actually playing defense now to keep what we have. Um, because in the wake of the 2020 election, this national wave swept through the Republican Party of cracking down on voting and trying to suppress vote, you know, access to the ballot and the ease of using absentee ballot and early voting and all of these mechanisms that make it easier for people to get to the polls. Um, and so we started to see that in Idaho. You know, some some of my colleagues have joked that, you know, Idaho never had enough of a of a minority population for them to bother with voter suppression. Um, and so because Idaho is so overwhelmingly white and conservative, they always felt very comfortable making voting very easy. <laughs> um, and they never engaged in the kind of crackdown maneuvers that you see in states um, that have more voters of color that they want to suppress. Um, and so, uh, but I think the national wave got so strong that even in Idaho, they started looking at voter suppression, even in a place where they have 82% of the seats, they still started looking at how can we make it harder for people to vote? How can we crack down on absentee ballots? Um, and so we, we were really playing defense this session. Um, and so I actually did have a bill that would have made it, you know, tried to ease access. I had a bill that would have required county clerks to notify people when their absentee ballot got rejected for a for some defect for a pre you know, perceived mismatch of signatures or something to alert the person so they would have an opportunity to correct that and make sure their vote counted. Um, that bill got blocked and denied a voter a hearing. I thought it was a pretty basic, reasonable thing that actually had some bipartisan support. Um, but the chair of the State Affairs Committee made clear that he hates absentee voting and does not want anything that would expand it or increase its you know reliability or access or use by people. Um, we had a bill that we fought back that would have uh, said that uh, absentee ballot votes can't be used to allocate presidential electors. Then maybe you can use an absentee ballot to vote on, on, on local elections, but you, you, that vote won't count for president, which was pretty shocking. Um, as I mentioned, there was a, a, a bill to basically block student voting and say that student IDs would no longer be used as acceptable identification for voting, which would have effectively crushed the student vote because nobody gets a... Uh, driver's license issued to their dorm address, right? <laughs> yes. um, so we were really, and you know, we we were facing a really severe ban on ballot collection, which is something that really hurts Native American communities. That basically would make would have made it a felony to drop off somebody's ballot for them. So if you have a neighbor with a disability or, or a mobility problem, or who doesn't have a car, who says, "Here, can you drop off my ballot for you for me?" If you go and drop off their ballot for them, you've committed a felony. Um, and this is something that, as I said, would particularly affect Native American populations where people living on reservations um, don't have ready access to mailboxes or ballot locations. And it's pretty common for people to drop off and pick up each other's mail. Um, and it would have made it a felony to try to assist people on reservations to vote by dropping off their ballots for them. Um, so we were facing a whole slate of really terrible bills to reduce ballot access, to reduce use of, of, of absentee ballots, um, to eliminate drop boxes. Um, there were some pretty terrible things that thankfully we fended off this session, um, but I'm sure they'll be back. Uh, but right now, our position basically is we will be lucky if we can hold what we have. Um, I'm hoping, you know, maybe some miracle change in the chairman, maybe I can get my bill through to at least notify people when their ballots are rejected. Um, but I did want to weigh in a little bit on the on the even on the odd year thing because again, it's everything is so upside down here. This has been a real move by the Republicans in Idaho because we have a really f different phenomenon in Idaho where we actually.
actually have local governments that are far more progressive than state the state government. So we've been trying for years to get, you know, statewide protection against LGBT discrimination, um, you know, as statewide action on climate change, all of these things, no hope at the state level, laughed out of town at the state level. Um, but we actually have city councils that are doing things. I and mean, the majority of our cities throughout the state actually do have LGBT non-discrimination ordinances. And a number of them have actually, you know, committed to going carbon free by 2030 and are, you know, creating housing for the homeless programs and actually doing some really cool things at the city level, which has enraged our state Republican Party. And they're saying, you know, how in the world here in Idaho have these, you know, progressive city councilors been allowed to slip through and these progressive mayors? And they're saying, well, it's because they're running on nonpartisan ballots in off-year elections. It's because they're running in odd years without a letter beside their name. If we can just change that to an even year when we can make clear that, you know, these aren't real Republicans and when the big, you know, Republican crowds are turning around, that will be their chance to run these progressive city officials out of town on a rail. Um, and they're pretty clear on that in their social media, that that's their agenda for why they want to move our municipal elections and local elections to even years, because they see that as their path to basically wipe out the progressive tendencies of our city governments across the state. Um, so it's, it's, it's an interesting dynamic we have here, but here it's very much, <laughs> very much being driven as an effort to, you know, eradicate progressive initiatives that are happening in, in local governments. Oh, it's funny. We're, we're in the reverse right here. You know, here in Idaho, it's actually the Democrats that are fighting tooth and nail to keep those municipal elections in odd years. <laughs> it's the only way we can keep good things happening in our, in our, at, at the city levels. Yeah, that's really interesting dynamic, Alana. I think that's uh, why it's so important to advocate for boosting voter turnout in elections in general. And so I think I want to kind of shift towards that topic here. So this month, Oregon Governor Kate Brown signed House Bill 3291 into law, which authorizes officials to accept ballots postmarked by Election Day instead of requiring ballots to be in hand by Election Day. Dan, you touched on this. This is something Washington State has been doing for years. So Dan, how do you think this more voter-friendly policy might influence turnout? And, and this is an interesting kind of to some of our other conversations. This is a bill that had been in the works for 20 years, right? Um, when Republicans were in control of the Oregon legislature and there was a, a um, Republican speaker, they attempted to move this bill. Uh, but actually died and failed on the House floor um, with votes, which rarely happens uh, in the Oregon legislature. Uh, and one of the main oppositions that we've been talking about in the past were the county clerks in Oregon. Uh, and eventually, this was the first year that um, Ryan uh, Gleason in my office worked with them to include various elements um, and to move various deadlines to ease the workload to make, um, frankly, the county clerks neutral. And that's how eventually this bill got over the hurdle this session by, you know, incorporating the things that they needed to see, frankly, to where they weren't like excited about it, let's be real. Uh, but but it was enough to finally get it done. And through that process, we started looking at real numbers, right? Um, and talking with certain county clerks that were very positive about the idea, because not everybody is the same, right? Some people are going to be supportive, some people are going to be opposed. The And what we were able to look at is Marion County was a wonderful county that actually gathered data. 
And what they looked at is how many ballots actually were mailed, received after the election day, right, with the postmark uh, prior to the election day. Uh, and there we were able to demonstrate in the legislature that there are people who take the time to fill out their ballot. Um, they know who they want governing them, but we were just not counting their ballots when it came in. And I think that was very impactful in the conversation for some of these county clerks, frankly, and I think for a lot of the legislators. And it's not a huge number. I mean, you're talking about you know thousands of people, not tens of thousands of people. Um, but it will make a concrete impact, at least from that data. The the other question is how beyond that does it impact voter behavior, right, when you know this? And, and that's a question that I don't really have a good answer to. Um, it's, it's we only were able to really dig into, you know, the, the actual folks um, that would specifically, um, you know, have been counted as a ballot as opposed to, you know, future voter behavior changes. I'd be curious in Washington when they interacted, um, if what, what other type of um, things that they saw as well. You bring in a really good point about how it's not just how this is going to influence the hard numbers, but also how it's going to be influencing voter behavior. So Mia, earlier this year, the Senate State Government Committee heard expert testimony on the harm caused by Tim Iman's advisory votes, which at our team at NPI considers to be anti-tax propaganda. Because advisory votes have been shown to confuse voters, unnecessarily lengthen the ballot and push candidate elections and real ballot measures to the back of the ballot, they constitute a form of voter suppression. Eliminating them would get rid of a barrier to voting, especially in odd-numbered years. Do you think that 2022 could be the year that the legislature adopts legislation repealing advisory votes? Well, that's, that's a great question, Kaya, and I totally agree with you that these advisory votes are ridiculous. They cost taxpayers money um, to have um, lines and lines and lines on the ballot of these votes that don't actually mean anything. Um, I think that's one of the biggest scams of the issue in itself. You know, we are hopeful that that con that conversation, Senator Patty Cooter has been championing that for several years now. We all know that the legislature takes multiple sessions in order to sort of work through those details. Um, last year, I think it got caught up because, of course, we have... COVID and a totally remote session. The year before that, I was pre preparing for whether it was redistricting or the presidential <laughs> elections, um, security, cybersecurity, and other things. So, Kai, I'd like to think that this is a good year to really continue to push forward and see around the corner on improving um, what it is voters are looking at and what they're voting on and a way to save taxpayers' dollars. Yeah, thank you very much for that answer, Mia. So Ilana, Governor Little recently signed legislation that would make it more difficult to qualify initiatives to the ballot. Ballot initiatives can be a great tool for voter turnout. Putting something close to home, you know, putting something that are close to home issues on the ballot motivates voters and gives them something to vote on. Since Idaho doesn't have a Democratic governor or Democratic majorities, the only way for progressive ideas to be considered at the state level in Idaho is through ballot initiatives. So what are prospects or for the legal challenges that, that have been filed to this legislation? Do you have any plans on pushing back? Oh, yeah, that was the worst thing that happened during an all around terrible session for us um, was they passed this Senate Bill 1110, which was 
a catastrophe. Um, we have a ballot initiative process in Idaho. It's incredibly difficult and already was in, was very rarely used. We'd had, you know, one passed in the past decade, uh, you know, since it was instituted, you know, 100 years ago, there's been about one ballot initiative a decade that passes because it's really hard to meet the signature requirements already. We already had the hardest signature collection requirements in the nation. Um, <clears throat> and they passed a bill to essentially double it. Um, because our legislature hates ballot initiatives for the very reason that you outlined. Um, it's because I think the population of Idaho is actually substantially more progressive in their issue preferences than our legislature is. And the ballot initiative process is the only avenue. For example, Medicaid expansion, um, we couldn't get a hearing or a vote on that for seven years. Um, our legislature was blocking it completely it passed by 61%. So we 61% of Idahoans wanted this, but it was being absolutely stonewalled, blocked at every turn by our legislature. And there are a number of issues, I think, that are like that, including increasing minimum wage, um, including, including medical marijuana. Um, I think there are a lot of issues where there are things our populace wants that they will never get from their legislature, and they have only one avenue to get it, and that's the ballot initiative. And our legislature is just hell-bent on shutting that down. Um, they had actually passed a couple bills to try to terminate it in 2019, the year after they, the, the people passed Medicaid expansion, um, and the governor vetoed it, but this time he let it go through. It is being heard, It was heard a month ago before the Idaho Supreme Court. I did listen to the oral argument. I thought our attorney on that hit it out of the park. I thought she was phenomenal, but who knows what will happen there. Um, you know, the legislature, our constitution says the people have a right to ballot initiatives, but the legislature gets to set the rules around it. Um, and so they basically like, fine, we'll set rules that make it impossible. You know, so then I think there's a question of, well, do, don't you still have to make it somewhat feasible? You know, can you really say all signatures have to be collected in blood by moonlight? Um, or, you know, or do you have to, you know, does the Constitution implicitly reply, imply that those rules have to allow a realistic path for ballot initiatives, um, which clearly they have not. So it was heartbreaking that that passed. I had hoped it would be a wake up call to the people of Idaho. Um, to stop electing people who don't reflect their actual policy preferences. Um, but I think our core problem underlying all of this is that we have this deep cultural affiliation in our voters to vote Republican no matter what, whether or not that person in any way reflects policy preferences. And so the end run around that is the ballot initiative where... Uh, you know, they still vote Republican, but once they actually get a chance to vote on issues, they vote very differently. Um, so that's the that's the challenge of my life is how to break through that, how to get people to actually vote on the issues they care about and to engage and inform themselves enough to, you know, not just vote for Medicaid expansion when it's on a ballot initiative, but actually vote for the person who wants to implement ballot and uh, implement Medicaid expansion. Um, and there's been a fundamental breakdown, I think, in Idaho politics along that front. But we are waiting on tenter hooks here to see what our Idaho Supreme Court will do and whether they will salvage citizen ballot initiative rights for us. Kaya, it might be interesting in Oregon, the counterpoint to that is we have one of the most active states with uh, you know, the, this initiative process, which I go back and forth. It's interesting because we will see certain ballot measures that pass where there is a, they're very complex um, and the voters don't always see all the, the intricate details. Um, and some of them are wonderful, but will pass um, what I would say unfunded mandates 
which then come into the state and create fiscal problems for us to then solve when there's a finite amount of revenue in a, in a state. So what, there was a, a, a ballot measure that passed recently that um, none of the voters probably knew was going to reduce funding for K through 12 schools by about $112 million. Um, and, but, it, but it was really focused on you know, um, addiction recovery, behavioral health supports, wonderful intent. Right in, in the way that we're looking at things, but it, the way that they were trying to pay for it was shifting some of the funding and the really intense, complex bills at times. So I, it's an interesting thing because I, I agree that you, you focus on people and what they want, especially when the legislature, due to politics, is failing to produce the results that the people want. But there's also this other nuanced approach that I'm still internally struggling with. Like, how do we as a society deal with that? Thank you for that. So Alana and Dan, both of those great insights. Dan, I do have a question for you about Oregon and some of their processes um, as well. So Oregon currently allows recall campaigns to be launched against legislatures for no reason other than some of their constituents don't like their politics and would like them removed from office early. Politically motivated frivolous recalls are not allowed north of the river in Washington. Recall proponents must convince a judge that the official that they want to recall has committed an act of misfeasance or malfeasance while in office. Do you think that Oregon should adopt Washington's more stringent standards for recalls? That is a really interesting question uh, because you, you, we've seen nationwide how recalls can be really politically targeted. Um, you know, for, um, in some ways when people know that they're not even going to be effective, right? We, in Oregon right now, we're having recalls being filed when I think one of them recently didn't even gather a single signature, right? It's more political messaging um, that people are using. I don't think I'm willing to go as far as to say that um, a judge, you know, should only do it for certain reasons yet. Um, I think that, for instance, if um, in my district, if I went in an entirely different direction in a four-year, you know, say I had a four-year term in my first two years, and people really realize that this isn't the person that I voted into office, right, values-wise, and there was broad community support for a change in leadership. Um, under those circumstances, um, I think it's an interesting policy question. Uh, do, should the voters have the ability to, you know, put someone in that more matches their values, or do they have to wait? that full four years, kind of a buyer's remorse type of a deal. Um, and because of that internal struggle, I'm not ready to sit there and say we should change our system in Oregon. However, I would say, and two, there may be other solutions that would help us tackle the problem of the, the recall process being so uh, political, right, and only being used for political purposes. Um, and, and I don't know what those solutions are. Um, this question, frankly, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about it because I think it's a really, really interesting and important topic. Right. Thank you very much for that, Dan. Um, so I have a, just a couple more questions for y'all um, before as we're kind of getting into the end of our show. So the first is that at MPI, we like to say that elections are public service. They cost money, just like any, just like our other essential public services, and they have unfortunately been underfunded historically. If each of our states were to increase funding for election outreach, how would you like to see that money appropriated? What ways would you like to see your state's elections officials engage and empower, especially communities of color and constituencies that have been previously marginalized? Go ahead and start with you, Mia. 
Okay. Thanks, Kaya. Well, you know, some of the that always comes into play when we're thinking about the additional funds that you know that um, we would have overall if we were to remove the odd year elections, right? And what could we do with that? And I think voting um, student hubs is one of those things that we're we've already started some pilots, and Central Washington is one of the the best ones. It's the you know it's the North Star, um, and so we're hoping to see that unfold more and more. I think it's a great way to help young people just really be part of the system, um, to be rewarded for it, and to answer those questions. We're relationship based, and when we expect people to really be transactional uh, in a cadence that's too fast and too complicated, it's just uh, it's just not nice and it's not fair. And then if you have folks. Um, that have other types of disadvantages. It's really about trusted messengers and really um, trusting community-based organizations to be able to be part of the process. I think we use structure systems to scare nonprofits and others from really talking about these issues and helping their membership or their, their communities be engaged. Um, there are not that many C4 organizations in Washington State, and while I get that that's not a way we can use state dollars, it is a way that we can help educate on what the differences are and then what you can and you cannot do. And I think that alone is worth um, spending resources towards that will then influence those local elections. Um, so those are just some things that come to mind for me. Absolutely. And, and I, I look, I think like Mia, I look at it uh, twofold. One is what can the state do? And then one, how do we partner with community groups um, to engage, right? Um, on the state level, I think in Oregon, there's some low hanging fruit with um, with certain reforms that we could do. So yeah, um, same day voter registration is a constitutional ban that we have in Oregon. I think that needs to be overturned and I'd like to see that changed. Um, I would like to see that. I think we all know that voting is a habit. Right. And when people get in the form of that habit, they is going to increase turnout over their lifetime. Um, one of the policies that I think um, other states have that we do not in Oregon is where you allow um, people who are going to be 18 by the time of a general election to vote in a primary. Right. So they're still in an educational setting. They're still at home. Um, that is a way to help ingrain that habit, looking for other ways to improve that habit. Civics education. Um, and really supporting that, especially in this, there's, there's, um, there's so much more to civics education than just voting, right? Especially in this day and age. And I really think that that needs to be a concerted effort um, and investment in that um, long-term. I think it's a foundation of our democracy. And then I wholeheartedly agree with me as, um, you know, when we're thinking about communities of color um, and you look at the, uh, frankly, the, the lack of diversity in many legislat legislatures, uh, how do we engage communities and with specific needs and looking towards, uh, in Oregon, we um, I think we're very fortunate to have a wealth of C4s and other organizations that are directly involved um, within communities and engaging them on an education level and frankly ask, you know, bringing folks together and saying, what are the next things that we need to be doing? Um, every state is different, every community is different, uh, but then how can we facilitate that conversation and then invest in the outcomes of those conversations I think would be really important. Um, and then the other thing that we've been doing in Oregon, I would uh, a lot of 
Um, credit would go to uh, Representative uh, Teresa Alonso Leon. Representative Pham is looking at expanding our voter pamphlet statements um, into where um, doing it numerous. Uh, you know, and I think we were limited this year to the, the, the amount of languages that we're now printing that in. Um, but that is something that we could do much better on in Oregon. But again, those things cost money, right? I completely agree on the outreach. I mean, while Idaho has very high turnout at the top level, um, it, it's very uneven. Um, our turnout is astronomical in the white population and quite dismal in our Latinx and, and uh, Native American populations and other communities of color. Um, and I would love to see just across the board effort done to promote registration and turnout in those areas. Um, I, I actually had a bill to do what Dan said in terms of allowing 17-year-olds. I think that is hugely impactful in terms of engaging young people. And I did pull together some data when I was trying to get a hearing on that bill. Um, it's, it's actually a really big deal letting 17 year olds register um, because that's when, you know, it's when those kids are in that American government class in their senior year and they have a teacher who's trying to register all the kids in the class, but the only ones that can get registered are the ones who are already 18. And there's a huge delta then between the people who are registered. Those kids who are still 17 and don't get registered, there's data showing that it's like 10 years until they become regular voters, whereas those who actually got registered in their high school government class immediately become registered voters. Um, so it has a tremendous long lasting impact, whether or not you can reach those kids when they're still in an educational setting where they have that good-hearted uh, government teacher handing out the registration forms in the government class um, <laughs> and being able to reach all those kids instead of a third of those kids or whatever. It's a big, big deal in terms of engaging youth voters. Um, which is absolutely instrumental. I mean, we have catastrophically low turnout rates in our youth voters, um, which to me is absolutely upside down of how it should be. And particularly, I think it plays out in things like climate change policy. Um, when you have, you know, 93% of people over 65 voting and 22% of people under 30 voting, you know, it's like, it's those people who are under 30 who need a world that's gonna be functioning for the next 60 years in a way that maybe 70 year olds don't. Um, so, uh, you know, I think I would love to see more work. And I think some of it may be resources and some of it is just policy changes um, to work on youth engagement and youth turnout, as well as um, minority and underrepresented populations. Well, maybe what we're hearing right today is that we should have a trifecta of all the 17 year olds and we have a three state challenge to see how many 17 year olds can vote, regardless of whether they're registered or not, since they're already in the K through 12 system. And then somehow we publish those details, uh, no pain, no process. We figure out the right pain point for them. So they get really involved and invested in that and uh, try to take on that challenge until Dan, you have that bill passed. I do know here in Washington state we have that, but that doesn't mean we can't uh, use the three states to really try to see what we can do with that. That's really neat. I, I like that idea. Thank you very much. Those are all fantastic insights and thoughts, all of you. So we are coming into the end of the episode and with just a couple minutes left with you folks, we covered a lot of great ground. And before we wrap up, I just have one final question. Let's say that you're having a conversation with somebody in a coffee shop, you mention an upcoming election, and they say, and I hear this a lot um, in Spokane when I talk to people, is I don't vote. What difference does it make? It's just a local election. So what would you say to that person to encourage them to participate, um, starting with you, Dan? 
You know, I just talk about personal experience, right? Uh, and, and how in, in Italy, and I, I'm sure it's this way in Idaho and Washington. I mean, the real decisions that impact your lives are done at the local and the state level. I mean, then talk about what those things are. And then, of course, we've been in this political world for a long time. We can always cite to various elections um, that come down to um, uh, other different, like, you know, several votes. I mean, this happens, you know, every year in every state where it's, you know, 50 votes, 100 votes, where it really does matter. I also think that there is something, you know, and I'm a big proponent of ranked choice voting, but I think there is some, something to the effect when your elected officials know um, you know, the support uh, of, you know, of which direction that folks are interested in headed based upon a platform that's very informative for how you are going to govern your district. It's not just being elected, but it's the, the degree of support in a given situation, um, especially in a ranked choice voting election that is very informative for those folks as well. All right, thank you very much for that, Dan. And Mia, what would you tell this person? Yeah, I mean, for me, again, it's really about connection to that individual, what it is that they care about and try to identify those touch points. I can't help but think of local governments, right? It's park, police and poop. It, you know, it's like it's whatever they can see, touch and they care about and then really try and identify that touch point. Um, the other is if it's very political and it's campaign related, as an elected official, I know that we invest lots of money to educate people that are who have voted, right? If you're a zero or a one or four, we're just not sending you literature. You don't get to be educated. And so I, I try to always go back to the amount of times that you vote help to get you into the system so that when you decide you want to vote, at least you're being educated and people are knocking on your door. So I, I try really hard to try to have people think about it in that regard too. Thank you. And then Ilana. Oh my goodness. I have a whole litany of things I can throw at people if they try to suggest that uh, local government doesn't matter. I mean, uh, we have so many instances in our state of really critical pieces of legislation that genuinely materially impact people's lives that are passing or failing by the narrowest of margins at the legislative level. So, you know, Idaho is one of only four states that has no early childhood education. Um, we had a chance to get a large federal grant this year. It was turned down by one vote on the floor. Um, so we were one vote off of no longer being a state that has no early childhood education. Conversely, we managed to pass funding for Idaho Public Television by, I think, one or two votes. So people would have lost their Sesame Street and their, you know, we are the lowest funded schools in America. There are schools all over the state that can only operate four days a week because they don't have enough money to be open five days. That is state government. I mean, there is such material impact on people's day-to-day -day lives, probably more so than federal federal actions um, that is affected by what happens at the state legislature. My seat before the cycle before I got in, my seat was lost by seven votes. The Democrats lost a seat in East in West Boise by six votes. We won an, a, a local highway district seat by two votes. Um, we have all over the state seats at every level that go literally by under 10 votes um, and sometimes by as little as two votes. Um, and you look at the Virginia legislature, my heavens, the entire Virginia legislature turned on a coin flip because it was a dead heat, dead even vote as to who was going to control that final seat. It was completely even if one more person had showed up on the Democratic side, the Democrats would have had control of the House of their, their House of Delegates two years earlier. Um, people's 
people's vote is so much more impactful at the, at the local level than it is at any other level. You're very unlikely to ever be the vote that changes the outcome of a, of a presidential election, but there's a real good chance you could be the vote that changes the outcome of a school board or a county commission or a legislative seat election. So that is really, if you want to flex your power as a voter, that is the place to do it. Could not agree more with you, Alana. Well, panelists, thank you very much for those excellent insights. So to our listeners, thank you for joining us for our August 2021 episode of NW Currents with our guests, Representatives Mia Gregerson, Dan Rayfield, and Ilana Rubel. I hope you enjoyed the discussion and hopefully gained some knowledge that you can apply to your own advocacy. We invite you to join us again next month when we'll be discussing redistricting. To learn more about the work that NPI does, be sure to check out our website at nwprogressive.org. Again, that's nwprogressive.org. There, you will find a transcript of this episode and the PNW Currents Archive, as well as our poll findings, State House Bill Tracker, Elections Hub, and our publications like the Cascadia Advocate and In Brief. We'll see you next time for NPI. I'm Kaya Bader.